I'm going to start with a little bit of a, a quiz for you on, on the last few weeks, and I'm going to ask you to fill in this blank. God is holy. holy. Yeah, you didn't even need the blank. You got it before the blank. God is holy. We've been looking at this essential attribute of the character of God over the last few weeks. We're going to continue to do that today. I do want to tell you that uh, if, if you're interested in um, learning more about God's holiness, there's a fantastic book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. The Holiness of God. I would highly recommend everybody read this book. This is a phenomenal book. And so if you want to read more, learn more, if, if the last few weeks have stirred your soul a little bit about the holiness of God, I just want to, as your pastor, recommend this book to you. It's been a great blessing to me and to my life. I've recommended it to many people over the years. And so I just want to encourage you with that. So God is holy. We looked at this from Revelation chapter 4 that gathered around the throne of God are, are these, these four creatures in night and day. They continuously sing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As, as they see God and they see who God is, they see this essential uh, uh, piece of his character. Of course, we know that God is good. Of course, we know that God is loving. Of course, we know that God is gracious. Of course, we know that God is merciful and kind and patient and long-suffering and, and all of these things. But, but there's one essential element that captivates who God is more than anything else, and that is this quality of holiness. It means that God is set apart. It means that he is unique. It means that he is distinct from, from anything and everything else that we would ever even be able to compare him to. In fact, you can't compare God to anything else because God is holy. It's his transcendence, the fact that God is high and exalted, that he is above and beyond us, so far above and beyond us. As the heavens are higher than the earth. So is God above us. His supreme and absolute greatness, his loftiness, his majesty, all of the words that we could try to use to express who God is, they all fall flat as we try to describe God's holiness. I came across uh, this quote by A.W. Tozer this week, and it says this. It says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. We know nothing like God's divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the holy. Amen. If we're going to have any concept of, of God's holiness, it's only by a divine revelation of the Holy One to us and to our spirit. Amen. And so as we've been looking at the word of God and, and, and the response that people have when they have this revelation from God, it's this attitude of woe is me. Woe is me. When, when we encounter the holiness of God and we who are not holy, we who are the opposite of holy, we who are sinful, man in our flesh, when we have a sense of the holiness of God, 
We're like the prophet Isaiah who says, woe is me, I am undone. We saw the story of the disciples when, when Jesus would perform some miraculous act that would put on display his holiness and his divinity. Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And so we talked about the necessity of the cross of Christ in reconciling sinners to a holy God. That there's no way for us to be reconciled to God. There's no way for us to have fellowship with God because God is holy apart from the cross of Christ. Apart from the atoning work of Jesus where He died in our place, where He took His sin upon Him and now because of grace we are now clothed in His righteousness. Now God declares that we are holy. We are holy. Not in and of ourselves, not in and of our own righteousness, but because the righteousness of God has been applied to our account, we have been called to be holy. And so last week we spent some time walking through, looking at what it means to be holy. How it is that God has called us to live as holy people in the world in fellowship with a holy God. We looked at how the word saints which the Bible calls all of us who are in Christ, how the literal translation is holy ones. Holy ones. We're called to be holy ones. We're called to be saints. Now that doesn't mean that we will be perfect, but it does mean that we, like God, are, are set apart. As God is set apart from all of creation, so He has set us apart from the world to be holy before Him, to walk before Him as he says, blameless, he's called us to live. And so today I want to look at, we're going to finish up this, this sort of three weeks that we've been on looking at the holiness of God. And I want to think about, I want us to ponder, I want us to consider as, as God is holy and he has called us, his people, to be holy. I, I want us to consider that we worship a holy God. When we worship God, when when we gather together, we, we gather to worship a holy God. And the implications that that has for us and for our gatherings together. I believe that, it, that the fact that God is holy, it, it, it communicates something about the gathering of the holy ones, the ones that come together. You know, we, we talked uh, the, the last few months, we've been in this series about the church, the, the, the ecclesia. The ecclesia, the, the gathering of the saints, the, the ones that God has called out from the world. And we come together under the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. And God is here right now. He is here. Where two or three are gathered in His name, He is right there in our midst. God is here. And God is holy. And so what does this mean for our gatherings? What does it mean for our times of worship together? Does the holiness of God have any implications on, on the way that we gather and what we do when we gather? Does it matter that God is holy? Does that influence and affect the, the, the worship gatherings of the people of God? I believe that it should. Amen? Or are, are we just free in church, in our worship gatherings, are we free to just... Do whatever we want. To, to, to just worship God however we think is best, however 
however appeals to us the most, we can just worship God in that way? The answer to that is no. I'm going to show you from Scripture today why that is. And why we should, when we come to worship God, come with a sense that we're coming to meet with a holy God. And what a holy God expects from us when we come to worship Him. So let's pray. Father, we need your help today. Lord, without your revelation to us, we are blind and we are lost and we are in darkness. Lord, you've revealed yourself to us in your word. Your spirit inspired these words to be written. These are not the words of men. These are the words of a holy God. This is the holy Bible, the holy book. There's no other book like this book. There's no other word like this word. These aren't the words of, of, of men. These aren't the words of, of philosophy. These aren't the words of, of some very smart people that got together and wrote some very smart things. No, these are the words of the holy God. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that the spirit that inspired these words to be written would breathe upon our hearts today, would open up our eyes, would give us eyes to see, would give us ears to hear. Lord, that we would have a sense of your holiness, a sense of, of your glory today as we spend time considering these things of you, considering you and who you are, that that would help us to live in our lives to your praise and to your glory, not, not for our own will or pleasure, but for your will and pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, um, interesting chapter. Many of you know it as the story of the woman at the well. Jesus here in the midst of this story provides a profound teaching on worship. Uh, the Samaritans were, you have to know a little bit about who the Samaritans were to understand what, why this is significant. The, the Samaritans were, uh, they used to be Jews, they used to be Jewish, but when the Jewish nation was conquered uh, by first Assyria and then Babylon, some thousand years before Christ, uh, they, they took the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people, they took them into captivity. But they left a remnant behind but they also brought in people from foreign nations that intermingled and intermarried and, and really uh, perverted the, the ways of God. And they had even rewritten some of the, the Old Testament and added some things to it. And so the, the Samaritans are not uh, pure. They are not holy. They have intermixed and intermarried and, and they have compromised the ways of God and the words of God with the ways of the world. And eventually God's people came back, the Jewish people came back from exile and they reestablished the temple according to the word of God. They, they purified uh, themselves of, uh, or they consecrated themselves apart from the world and reestablished their society based on the words of God. And the Samaritans continued in their own way, on their own mountain, with their own temple, thinking that they could worship God their way instead of worshiping God as God had prescribed. And so because of that, Samaritans were outcasts in the society. They were outcasts among the people of God. 
because they had compromised. Now, the Jewish people had treated the Samaritans poorly. Nevertheless, that brings us to where this story is today. And Jesus, here we see he is ministering to a Samaritan woman, a woman who's gone out to draw water. For the purpose of our time today, I'm not going to go into her whole backstory and everything that has to do with this Samaritan woman, but we are going to look at what Jesus taught her about worship. And so after a bit, a bit of time transpires in this conversation, we're going to look at verse 19. The woman says to Jesus, sir, I perceive that, perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. They're on Mount Gerizim. On this mountain, that's in northern Israel. On this mountain, our fathers worshipped. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people who will worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must Worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Some important things in this passage that we need to examine is that Jesus does not bless the way that she is worshiping God. Jesus says, you don't know what you are doing when you worship. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we do know. We know God. You do not know God. Why don't they know God? Because they have rejected his word. And they think that they can worship God God, however they want, however they please. Jesus, even though he's ministering to this woman, he, he, is not, uh, uh, he does not tiptoe around the fact that she is idolatrous, that she is worshiping not the one true God, but a, a God of her own imagination. And so he says, you don't even know what you are worshiping. You, you are not worshiping the right way. He says, True worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He is telling this woman there is a right way to worship God and there is a wrong way to worship God. It's actually there is a right way to worship God and then there are lots of wrong ways to worship God. This is the issue. This is what he's dealing with this woman about. Now, we can go into her backstory. We can see all of the, the idolatry that she's had in her own life as she has prioritized uh, men and, and being with men and had five husbands and all of this stuff in her backstory. The issue is worship of God. That's the issue. That's the issue for us. That's the issue for 
the world today. The world does not worship God, the one true God. And even the church today, even the church believes that we can worship God any way we want. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that there's a kind of worship that is pleasing to God and that true worshipers, he says, must, not should, not it would be good if, not it would be better than, true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. There's a right way to worship God and there are wrong ways to worship God. So what is this spirit and truth? Well, the spirit is that is we don't worship, our, our worship is not uh, a, a physical act. It, it's not a physical thing. It is a spiritual act that we offer to God. We offer God spiritual worship. God is spirit. And so we worship him from our, our spirits must worship God. It's talking about the, the inward places of our hearts. That's the issue. The issue is the heart. You see, we can all come in here and sing the songs, read the words on the screen, pretend we're doing some sort of Christian karaoke night. But if your heart is not there, if your spirit is not engaged, you are not worshiping God. Though the words may come out of your mouth, Though you may sing with a, a beautiful sound and tone, you are not worshiping God. God would much rather have the worship of, of a tone-deaf ostrich. Someone who squawks like an ostrich, whose heart and spirit is engaged. than someone who could sing a beautiful chorus but has no desire for God, is not engaged in the inward parts of their being. It's not about, it's not about the, the songs we sing, they're, they're just, they're an aid, they're, they're a help, they're, they're, in a, they're there to assist us, to, to help give words and, and expression to what should be happening in our hearts. But true worship is not about the songs. True worship is about what's happening in our hearts. In spirit, we worship God in spirit. The second thing is that we must worship him in truth. This means it is a, a, an unwavering commitment to, of course, accuracy in doctrine as we worship God. Amen. We, we want to be singing things about God that are true and not false. We, 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 the, the, the song we sang this morning says, I, I love you, Lord, with all of my strength, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my mind. How do you worship God with your mind? You, you think on, you meditate on the great and lofty truths about God, the truths about God. What is true? And again, this issue of the Samaritans is they had sacrificed the truth of God's word to compromise and make things more acceptable to themselves and to the foreign cultures that had intermingled with the people of God. 
And that happens in the church of Jesus Christ every Sunday. Where we intermingle with the things of the world to make things more acceptable, more palatable, more comfortable to the people of the world. And that's not worshiping God in truth. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so what that means is that we need to be not like the Samaritans. Instead, we need to search the Scriptures and search the Scriptures diligently to see what is it that the Word of God teaches us about worship so that we can worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, I can't worship God in spirit and in truth if I don't know what God's Word teaches about worship. Amen. How can I worship Him in truth if I don't know the truth about worship? And so this morning, I want to look at some of the great truths that the Bible teaches us about worship. Is that okay this morning? So the, the, let's go to the first place that worship is ever shown in the Bible. The very first place. It's in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. So flip with me to the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. This is after the fall of Adam and Eve. They've had some children. The Lord has blessed them with children. They've been removed from the Garden of Eden. They've had two sons, Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain. And she named him that, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The very first example we have of worship in the Bible, we have an offering that is received by God and an offering of worship that is rejected by God. The very first time we see worship in the Bible, there is some worship that God receives and there is some worship that God rejects. Now, I don't know about you, but I want God to receive my worship. Amen? So what is it about the offerings that is different what is, why is this God receive Abel's offering and not Cain's offering? Now, there are some who would, who would look on the surface and say, well, Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice and, and Abel brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord. 
But I don't think that's what's going on here. Because later on in, in, in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, when God gives his law to Moses and he, he shows how people should worship God and, and, and he, he, he shows them about the different offerings that you can bring to the Lord. Not only did they offer animals to the Lord, but they also offered grains and offerings and, and fruits and vegetables to the Lord. So it's not that God wouldn't receive fruits and vegetables. That's not what's going on here. In fact, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, what is going on. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What was the difference between their offerings? Abel offered his offering in faith. It was a spiritual act of worship. Again, the, the, the other part of this is that he brought, Abel brought the best to God. He brought the firstborn of his flock. He bought the, the fat portions were, which were considered to be the, the most delicacy, the, the best portions of the animal. And it doesn't tell us that Cain brought us that. In fact, it just says he brought an offering from, from the ground, from, from the, the fruits of the, his labor. And so Cain doesn't bring his first fruits. He doesn't bring his best to the Lord. He doesn't offer it in faith. Abel brings his best to the Lord. Abel offers a true sacrifice to the Lord, and he does it in faith. And so it's not only about the content of the offering, but more so it's about the content of the heart of the worshiper. Do you see that? Do you see that it's the heart that matters in worship to God? And a heart that is truly for God will search the word of God and worship God as God has prescribed Let's flip forward a few uh, pages in our Bible to the third book of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is all about how God is holy and how a, how a sinful people can worship a holy God. It's what the whole book is about. And it's all about the, the, the rites and the rituals and the procedures that the priests had to go through to make themselves pure to offer sacrifices that were acceptable to God. Jesus told the woman at the well, he says, the time is coming and is now here where, where the old way of worshiping God through the, the rituals, through the ways of purifying yourself before God, where that will be done away because the Messiah is coming. And Jesus is now our great high priest. Jesus is the one who has sprinkled our hearts clean who has sanctified us, who has made us righteous. But in the days of Moses, it was not that way. They had to go through all of these rites of purification to be able to offer sacrifices to God. And Aaron, who was the high priest at that time, he was a Levite, the high priest. He had two sons who were ordained into the ministry and the priesthood. 
They had, they had been taught the word of God. They had been shown all of the procedures, all of the practices that, that God had prescribed to be worshipped. They had gone through these ceremonies of purification, these rites of purification. They had, have, had had offerings offered on their behalf to, to, so that they could stand before God in the place of uh, the, the people of Israel and offer sacrifices that were acceptable to God. And, and just after they were ordained into the ministry, it tells us in, in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and, off, and offered unauthorized or that word can be translated as strange, fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So Nadab and Abihu, they, they go in to do their ministry before the Lord. They're, they're dressed in their priestly garments. They're, they're wearing all the vestments of the priesthood. They have their, their censer. They, they get the incense. But it says that they do something that is unauthorized. They do something that is strange. They do something that, that God had not commanded them to do. They offered up unauthorized, strange fire before the Lord. Verse 2 tells us what God thought about that. It says, And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who draw near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, what was this strange fire? What was this unauthorized fire? What was this incense that they had offered before God that was unacceptable? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what the Bible does tell us what we do know is that they had been instructed not to do it. In the book of Exodus, the preceding book of the Bible, chapter 30, verse 9, it says, You shall not offer unauthorized or strange incense on the altar of God. God had shown them, God had revealed to them, God had told them and prescribed exactly in minuscule detail all of the, the, the procedures for how he was to be worshipped. And so Nadab and Abihu, they disregard the commandment of God to worship God as they see fit. To worship God not according to God's will and God's word, but according to their own will. What was right in their own eyes? What was pleasing to them? They went in before a holy God. And we see what happened to them. A holy God consumed them in their rebellion against God. If you flip over a couple more books to the book of 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 6. Fast-forwarded in the story quite a bit, the story of God's people, the story of God's worship. 
What, what the, the story in 2 Samuel 6, what preceded this is the people of Israel were at war with the Philistines and they thought that they could use the, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this place where God's spirit literally dwelled, the Bible says. They thought that they could take that into battle and use it sort of as a good luck charm to win the battle. Well, that didn't work. And they lost the battle. The battle was won by the Philistines. The Philistines carried the Ark of the Covenant off. They put it in their own temple. That didn't go well for the Philistines. Um, God struck all of them with hemorrhoids, which is, I think, hilarious. They didn't have any preparation H in those days. So God struck them all with hemorrhoids and... Their, their god, Dagon, when they went the next morning into the, to the, their place where their god was, he was laying face down, their idol was laying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know, to help their god out a little bit, you know, they, they pick him up and put him back on his, his pedestal because he needed help. The next morning they go in and He's shattered. His, his head is separated. His arms are separated. His legs are separated. He's laying face down before the ark of God. And again, they've all just broken out with this very serious hemorrhoid situation. And so they decide, this is more trouble than it's worth. Let's get rid of this thing. And so they devise a plan for how the ark should be returned. Because they weren't sure, is this the ark of the... Is it God's presence that's doing this to us or is it just a coincidence? And so they came up with this plan of taking two brand new mother cows, two, two cows that had just given birth to calves who were still nursing, and they built a cart for the ark. And they said, if we put the ark on this cart carried by these two cows, if these, if these two mama cows will leave behind their baby cows that are crying for them and asking for mommy's milk, if these two cows will walk off, we know that this is God that has done this to us and not uh, just a coincidence. And so they, they build the cart, they get the cows, they put the ark on the cart. And of course, the two mommy cows just drive straight back to the people of Israel, to the land of Israel. And, and the the... The ark then rested at someone's house for um, about 20 years, 20 or 30 years. Well, David becomes king, and that's where we pick up the story. So the ark is still dwelling, not with the people of God, not in the city of God. And David has it on his heart to bring back the ark of the covenant back to the people of God and to the city of Jerusalem, to the tabernacle that he set up. And so 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. 
with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So, so there's this great celebration. 30,000 of David's choicest men, they're bringing the ark of God, the presence of God back into the city of God, into the tabernacle that David had set up for God to be worshipped, for God to be praised. He set it up on a rotation of 24-7 of, of worship happening in front of the presence of God in this tabernacle. And so we're bringing the ark back. There's this great fanfare, this parade that's happening, all of this music, all of these festivities. Now it says... When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of God come to me? And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom Obed -Edom, and all his household. What was the problem here? Why did the Lord strike down Uzzah? Why was his anger kindled against him? Well, there was two mistakes that they made. The first one was they were not transporting the ark of God the right way. The right way. God had told them in his word how the ark of God, how the presence of God, the ark, should be carried. It was to be carried on the shoulders of people from the tribe of Levi. Not just anybody for the tribe of Levi, the priests of the tribe of Levi. Not just any priest from the tribe of Levi, sanctified priests. Priests that had been consecrated, set apart, established, uh, purified for this very high and sacred duty of carrying the ark of God. It was not to be transported on a cart. It was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests of the Levites. That was the first mistake. They were transporting the presence of God the same way that the world had transported the presence of God. David put the ark on a cart, the same thing that the Philistines had done. The enemies of God, the people of the world, the people that don't have God's word. And they were trying to usher in the presence of God by following the pattern of the world instead of the pattern set forth in the word of God. That was the first mistake. The second mistake is that God had told them when they transport the ark, the furnishings of the tabernacle were to be covered. They were to be covered in this, this like a curtain or a thick cloth, a blanket that was to protect them and that no one was to touch the holy things of God. Numbers 4.15 tells us this. And so they touched it. Uzzah touched the holy things of God. So again, there's so many errors that are happening here. 
Number one, they're not holding the word of God in its proper place. They're not revering what God's word has said about how worship should be done. They think that we'll just do it whatever way is easiest to us. It's kind of troublesome to get these Levites and these priests and to get them sanctified and wearing the right clothes and going through all the right process. It's a lot easier and more efficient. We'll just slap it here on this cart. What difference does it make? Well, then it turns out God actually cares. God actually cares about how he's worshipped. God actually cares about if we pay attention to his word or not. And so they, they didn't put God's word in its proper place. The second, of course, they were using the methods of the world to worship God. And then finally, number three, it's just flat out disobedience. It's just flat out rebellion. They're just saying, we'll do it our way. God does not bless that kind of worship. God does not receive it. Later on, we see David got his act together. He, he got the priests. He got the Levites. He got them sanctified. He got them consecrated. And they brought the ark of, the, of, the, of God back into the city of God the right way. The right way. And what I want, to, want you to see is that this, again, this shows the condition of the heart. If we're not willing to worship God according to his word, it's a condition of our heart. A condition of our heart. Well, you say, you might say, well, these are all Old Testament examples. God's not like that anymore. You know, God's mellowed out a little bit in the New Testament. We're part of the new covenant. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who rejected Cain's worship, the God who struck down Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah is the same God that we worship today. He has not changed one bit. We commit a grave error in our worship when we think that we are worshiping a God who is different than the God of the Old Testament. A grave error. So let me take you quickly to uh, some New Testament passages Acts chapter 5. This is post-cross, post-resurrection, post-day of Pentecost. This is New Testament church. Acts chapter 5 verse 1. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? What he's saying is, look, Ananias, the land was yours. The money was yours. You're free to do with it as you please. But if you're going to bring it into the presence of a holy God and tell us that you have brought all of the offering to God, you had better bring all of the offering to God. 
He didn't have to bring all of the offering. Ananias' error was that he lied. He says, while it was yours, isn't that, aren't you free to do with it as you please? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is not Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is after... The new covenant, this is after the cross, this is after the resurrection, this is in the age of grace. Again, these stories, we find them, we read them, they seem to us shocking, do they not? What do we do with this? This tells us that God takes this stuff very seriously. And if God takes it seriously, we ought to take it seriously. Their sin was that they lied to God. That was their sin. Lying, of course, is one of the defining characteristics of Satan. Is the opposite of God's character, God who cannot lie. They were listening to Satan and letting him fill their hearts. And again, bringing offerings, bringing offerings to the Lord is an act of worship. And so they're worshiping God on false pretenses. They're they're doing it. Why? Why are they doing that? Why would they lie about this? Because they wanted the glory that belonged to God. They wanted people to say, oh, look how awesome Ananias and Sapphira are. Look at this offering that they're bringing in. Look how holy they are. Look how sanctified they are. Look how generous they are that they sold this land and they brought it all to the church. Wow, Ananias and Sapphira. That's what they were wanting. They wanted the glory that only belongs to God. The Bible says God will not share his glory with anyone. They wanted to use God for their own glory. Again, it's not about the money. It's about the testimony and the condition of the heart. Of the heart. I don't have time today to go to 1 Corinthians 11. Read that passage this week. Again, it's a New Testament example of how God takes worship seriously. One of these, all of these things have one thing in common. One thing in common, all of these stories. They treat that which is holy 
and they treat it as something that is ordinary. They, they treat something holy. They treat something that is sacred and they treat it as common and ordinary. They, they, they treat the transcendent, the, the holy God, high and exalted. They treat him like just an everyday object. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this. It says, therefore, since we have received an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament, folks. Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Listen, God is holy. God is holy. And what that means is that when we gather in his name as his people and he is here in our midst, it means our gatherings are also holy. That means that we should approach gathering together to worship God with the highest degree of awe, with the highest degree of reverence. You see, what God touches, he makes holy. When Moses stood before God, God said, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. What made the ground holy? God was there. What makes this gathering holy right now? God is here. He's in our midst. He has come to meet with us, his people who have gathered before him. Listen, going to church is not like going to the movies. Going to church is not like going to a concert. Going to church is not going, like going to a sporting event or to a lecture or to any other kind of gathering. The gathering of God's people, God's holy people, to meet with a holy God. It is a holy gathering. It is set apart. There's nothing else like this on the face of the earth. But if we approach the church, if we gather so casually, like we're going to just any other thing, like we're going out to eat, or like we're going to a movie, or like we're going to a Spurs game, or like we're going to a concert. If we have that same mentality, that's the mentality of the world, and we are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We must come to worship God with a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. This God that we serve is holy. He is a consuming fire, and he is here in our midst. The presence of Jesus is here. These gatherings are, are not common gatherings. If we truly understand that God is holy, there will be a fear of God on us as we approach the place where God's people worship. We're so casual about the things of God. We just act like it's just any other thing. Just, we, we, we're just so casual. And I'm not talking about the clothing that we wear. I'm talking about the content of our hearts. 
The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. I'm not talking about the clothes that you wear. But I will say this, if, if wearing nicer clothes to church helps you worship God and have a fear of God for you, I'm all for it. All right? I'm all for it. But we're not looking at the outward appearance. We're not even looking at you. When we gather, we're looking at God. Abel brought his best and his first to God, and he offered it in faith. When we gather, it should be in awe and in reverence in the fear of God, knowing we're coming to meet with a holy God. We should gather in deep sincerity, not in pretense. We should gather with, with a sincere heart, a sober heart. Yet we should gather full of joy for what Christ has done for us. Sincere and full of joy. We should celebrate what God has done in truth, in sincerity. You see, well, how can you be sober-minded and sincere and yet full of joy? Well, I'll give you an example. When, when I said my wedding vows, it was the most somber and serious moment of my life. I, I, took it, I took it more seriously than anything I'd ever taken in my whole life. And at the same time, I was so full of joy. So you can be serious you can be sincere. You can be sober-minded and still have joy. Now, I'm not talking about a glib sort of happiness, sort of like ha-ha, slap your knee, sort of we just went and saw Jerry Seinfeld kind of joy. No, I'm talking about a joy that's unshakable and full of glory. Something so deep-seated and deep-rooted. We should gather with intense focus to worship God, not distracted by all of the, the things of, that it would be so easy to carry away our attention. We should gather with gratitude and humility for what Christ has done for us. We should gather on time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But we should be on time to church. We're meeting with a holy God. Those who are joining us via live stream, there's an extra burden on you as you try to worship God in your living room. And I understand there are still several people that for health reasons are gathering online. I'm addressing you this morning because you have to make extra effort in your home to set apart a, a place to worship a holy God. You see, during the pandemic, we were all at home watching online, and I heard lots of messages from people who said, I love church at home. I don't even have to get out of my PJs. I don't think you get a whole lot of that, a whole lot out of that. It's an extra hurdle if you're gathering online. It, it requires extra attention, extra focus to put away the distractions. When we gather, we should gather with expectation that we are going to meet God today. We are going to hear from God today. We are going to be touched by God today. We're not gathering to be entertained. I'm not here to entertain you. I have zero interest in entertaining you. Zero. Zero. 
I'm here to tell you about a holy God. I'm here to draw you up into worship. I'm here to, to illuminate your mind with the scriptures. That's it. The church, the church in America has largely gotten off track because we have substituted the worship of a holy God for cheap Christian entertainment. There's a place for Christian entertainment. I don't have a problem with Christian entertainment. I do have a problem when you substitute worshiping God for Christian entertainment. And unfortunately, that's what happens in a lot of places today. And God's people are not able to discern between worshiping in spirit and in truth and simply being entertained and made to feel good. If you want to be entertained, repent. I was going to say go to another church, but I don't want that. Just repent. Just repent and get on, back, on track with what God wants for you. There's something higher than entertainment. There's something transcendent here. There's something holy here. Entertainment is, is, is such a low bar. We as God's people, we, we shouldn't settle for simply being entertained. That should leave us with just a, a, a longing and a hunger for, for being fed the true and pure word of God to worship God if we only experience entertainment with a Christian label. Finally, in conclusion today, worship is an act of sacrifice. Worship is an act of sacrifice every single time. If you have not sacrificed, you have not worshipped. Worship is sacrifice. And so when we gather here, we don't come for us. We come for Him. We don't come to receive. We come to give. To give worship to a holy God that deserves our worship 24-7. But we as God's people have set aside a holy time, a place that we have, have, have consecrated, have sanctified, have said this is the time where no matter what is happening in my life, I will go and I will worship God. We are here for Him. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Are there rewards for seeking after God? Absolutely. But we don't gather to get. We gather to give. To give Him our praise. To give Him our worship. To, to rededicate our very lives, our very essence, and our very selves. To lay our lives again every Sunday on the altar. And say, God, I am yours. Do with me as you please. We're here for Him. We're here to know Him. We're here to worship Him. We're here to praise Him. We're here to hear His Word and to offer our lives in reverent surrender.